to have a super sharp, like freshly sharpened knife on a Saturday is, mm-hmm. is awesome. Cause that's normally the, the day of the week when your, your knife is the <laughs> worst, right? Cause it's like, <laughs> it's, it's like your last day yeah, of your week. Absolutely. You know, I've sharpened mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. 40,000 knives. It was really hard to recover from that. A lot of people thought we were mm-hmm, making garbage mm-hmm. product. We replaced a lot. I'd say more than half of the stuff we make are all custom. You know, you, you go mm-hmm, to eat these mm-hmm. meals and it's, you spend, spend a ton of money on it. And it's sometimes I don't really like taste the passion in it. What's up, folks? Welcome to episode 55 of the Emulsion Podcast. My name is Justin Kana, and this episode has been, I like to say, years in the making. I had the incredible opportunity to interview Galen Gerritsen of Town Cutler fame. I'm reading this off their website, quote, Town Cutler is a multifaceted company dedicated to professional cutlery and handmade culinary goods, being makers, service providers, and retailers of all things cutlery. Founded in San Francisco in 2011 by former chef Galen Gerritsen, Town Cutler is a destination for high-quality knives and a hub for professionals and home cooks to share in their passion for cutlery and cooking. At their San Francisco and Chicago locations, they offer a curated selection of exceptional cutlery and culinary goods from around the world. They also provide expert knife sharpening, restoration services, as well as their in-house line of custom-made knives and waxed canvas and leather culinary bags and scabbards. End quote. Back in 2013, way back in the day, when I moved to the Bay Area in California, I would drive to San Francisco and visit this man's shop and just drool over the, over the knives and chat with him about custom tools. But there was no Justin Kana brand like you see today. There was I was a line cook. I was at the French Laundry and I bought a couple of custom sheets from him. I bought some silver spoons just to use uh, while I was on the line. Uh, during my station time, I actually got one of his first edition palette knives way back in the day. It seems like I cannot say enough good things about Galen, and hopefully this interview shows you why. Before we get into the show, if you're interested in sponsoring the show, this is an entirely audience-funded publication. If you want a shout-out here on the show, I'm going to be giving new patrons a shout-out here on the show for being awesome and being supportive. Just to make sure that no one's left out, I'm going to start with the current supporters. So Patrick, Paulina, Alberto, Ben, Jack, Lorraine, Katie, Connor, Kai, Amanda, Tomas, and Tomas, it's Thomas, <laughs> and more than anybody else, the one and only Joshua Burridge from Australia, the boss man on the highest level on my Patreon. Thank you all so much for your support. That's everybody that's supporting right now. Going forward, I'm going to shout out new supporters from week to week. That starts as little as $1 a month, so if you're interested, I would really appreciate it. That is patreon.com slash Kana. Thank you for making interviews like this possible. Let's jump right into it. Maybe a quick rundown of what's happening and exciting. Yeah, definitely. Um, I I rarely get out to restaurants or or know what's going on too much other than just reading what's online or um, what some of my staff uh, tells me because they go out and eat eat out a lot more than I do. So yeah, mostly engaged with uh, knife making and, uh, you know, other, other makers, which is a pretty exciting world right now because uh, about seven years ago, there was hardly any uh, American knife makers. There was probably like three or four people that I found that were doing it full time. A lot of other people were making like uh, buoy knives and folding knives and maybe made some culinary stuff here and there. But now uh, the culinary knife scene is just booming. There's tons of people that are making knives. I've certainly followed a ton of those guys on Instagram and it's kind of like uh, there, there's no real um, maybe that's what it is. It's kind of like the wild west. It's, it's really raw. You see people like in their backyard posting photos, of, like these beautiful handmade knives, but it's like, they're working out of like their garage. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you, there's, there's a quote that you gave um, 
a while back that says uh, an American knife maker's perspective. Can you tell me a little bit about what that is, I guess, and how it differs from maybe some other kind of perspectives or some other cultures of knife making? Yeah, I think it's, um, it, it's, just, it's changed a lot. And I think a lot of the American knife makers are taking uh, a lot of Japanese styles and European styles and kind of blending it into their own style. And I feel like the American knife makers are kind of redefining um, how knives are made, especially in the States. Where, where does that come from? Is there like a specific region that's really killing it right now? Or it's kind of like all over? As far as the American knife making? Yeah, I think yeah. it's all over. It's everywhere from, you know, like the backyard and in Ohio to we're making stuff in, in Oakland and Chicago's got some great makers, um, some people out in New York and Brooklyn. It's it's kind of spread all over the country. Sure. And it's, sure. It's, I think it's really hard to find uh, space, especially in cities. So we're not seeing too much. Um, I don't know of anyone that's making knives like in San Francisco because, you know, who mm-hmm. can afford to, to have a industrial space? There's so much that goes into it as far as like the the byproduct, like the dust and and the noise that uh, it's kind of hard to find a place to where, you know, you can rent a space to be able to make knives. But is that is that for us? Is that kind of like counterproductive? Because isn't I mean, when I think about the people that are buying the higher end handmade knives, it's either like the enthusiast home cook or the guy who's working on the line at a Michelin restaurant. And those like, how, how do you balance that kind of dichotomy of, like, you have to be in the big city to be near your, quote-unquote, market, but at the same time, you can't afford to have that big right. space? And I think the like, Instagram has changed a lot of things. Um, you know, totally. now you can see people's work. It's not really about where they're making it anymore. You're able to see, like, great photos. And um, it, it's the downside is you're not able to, like, touch the knife and hold it. And that's why we have our stores. You know, we could... Um, get rid of this really expensive retail spaces that we have, but uh, we want people to come in and, and feel the knife and, and touch it and use it. Right. That's like something that I've emphasized so much is that like, I mean, there's been people who reach out to me and ask me to review knives, but it's like, it's so individual, right? right? Like you can't, you can't, I, I, I feel really hesitant to recommend a knife to someone because like, I don't know because it might work for me, but you might exactly, hate it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I totally get that part. Um, so for people that don't know your story, I'm going to kind of include a little bit of that in the in the intro to the show. But the switch that you went through when you kind of moved from the kitchen to the to, to knife making, uh, you were quoted in saying, quote, I think that it was the knives and the fire that I liked so much about cooking. You throw in some food in a paycheck and I was happy. Can you go a little deeper into that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I started cooking when I was uh, professionally maybe 17 years old. Um, mm-hmm. And it seemed fascinating to me. It was really cool. Everything that went into it, I really enjoyed the, the production of it too, taking all these um, raw materials and refining it down and making this a dish from it. it was just really cool, the entire process. And it's kind of like the excitement of having this business now as we take all these raw materials and turn them into a really refined uh, product in the end. And I mean, there has to be something satisfactory about kind of like knowing that it's going to yeah, last. Absolutely. Right. Because <laughs> it's something that I was, uh, I got interviewed the other day and it was like, it was an interesting thing because they were, they, I said something along the lines of like, well, we're making this thing and then it just disappears mm-hmm. after a couple of, you know, it can be even seconds that mm-hmm. it's just gone. And then, 
the the rebuttal that I got to that, which I thought was really interesting, is that yes, but they come to see you mm-hmm. again, and I think that's really interesting. Where it's like, uh, I might get to do give that experience multiple times, but then I feel so bad because it's like mm-hmm. it's gone. It, do you is that something that drew you to making products as opposed to food? Yeah, definitely. It's really it's um, it's almost scary in the beginning of like making these knives. We want to hope that they last forever and ever. Um, right. And I was a lot more attached to each knife that we made back when we only made five or ten a month, <laughs> and I'd want to like uh-huh. follow that the history of it and like check in in a year. And right. It's cool because people bring it back to us since we offer free sharpening for our own knives. People bring yeah. it. We get to see uh-huh. how they use them. Um, um yeah. how how many knives are you guys doing? You said it was like five to ten a month back in the day. What is uh, it now? What this are your numbers? Last February was our biggest month ever. We did like a hundred and ten or so. We wow. was like my crew is absolutely killing it right now. We're um, doing a lot of steak knives for restaurants. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you about that because I mean, uh, my buddy just had a great meal at Californios oh, yeah. and sent me those knives. Yeah. Those Gorgeous. were really cool. What? Where does that start for you guys? Do they reach out to you or you guys are like out there hustling saying, hey, we want to make knives for uh, you They guys? actually started reaching out to us. We had talked about doing this um, the end of last year and it took us a while just getting our, um, you know, prototyping this out and like getting the right uh, edge geometry since it's going against a hard plate all the time. You, we don't really sharpen it the same way our chef knives are sharpened. A little sure, bit more sure. um, broader of an angle and um, so they could last a little bit better having the right weight for it too. And then, uh, kind of changing the shape of our handles. A lot of our steak knives are very flat. If you've seen a lot of our like, right. classic and pummel classic, there are a lot of curves going on on the handle. And we did that with a steak knife and it just spun on the table. It didn't sit flat. So we had to start <laughs> making them very flat and our wow. bolsters are kind of like ground in a way to where they're still comfortable in the hand, but they sit on the table securely. Where does that fall for you in like, because you're able to, it's it, it's taken off now, right? Like you 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 you're doing these uh, custom projects for restaurants. You're you're doing your own line of knives. Has anything shifted for you as far as like what's a passion project and what's paying the bills? Yeah, absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah, it changes all the time. And right now, I think we're going through mm-hmm. some of the biggest changes, and we're relooking at how we make like every step of the way. We're rethinking it now, so we can try to make things better and faster. Um, there's so much work that goes into it. We used to spend close to 10 hours per knife and now we're wow. trying to find ways to not sacrifice the quality at all, but still uh, right. make it faster so we can offer them a little bit cheaper. I mean, the first few mm-hmm. knives we did, you know, they were up in like the $400 range and now we're trying to bring them yep. down and we're introducing new lines that are more affordable because we want people to buy our stuff. We want them to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, we're just trying to like have a more broad spectrum you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but Michael Tusk, when you were back at Quince, told you to mm-hmm. open Town Color. Is, that, is there any truth to that? Or can you tell me a little bit more about how yeah, that Yeah, that's transpired? pretty true. When I was working there, um, him and I kind of bonded over antique knives. We both had a lot of really old knives. Uh, I used some really cool French butcher knife. It was probably 100 years old. Handle on it looks like it was like hand-carved. <laughs> that's awesome um, and i had things like you know old antler handle stuff and he had some cool old shapes he always went to uh, italy a couple times a year and would always come back with a bunch of really cool old knives and uh i think we just got to talking about it and he was like you know the city needs a shop like this and that's kind of like how it all began and i started writing my business plan while i was working there yeah and then uh um, yeah, I mean, left quince which is it's tough you know when you 
you get close with a chef in a restaurant and he wants you to be a part of his team for a long time. But I think he was had a ton of support for me opening this shop and still does. How much of that was um, like scratching your own itch? Were you kind of frustrated with the lack of options in San Francisco back, back in the, uh, back in you the know, day? I, I didn't really have too many knives. Uh, the knife that I used there mm-hmm. was a, a Wustoff 10-inch that I had for about 10 years. Yeah. Uh, everyone in that mm-hmm. kitchen had uh, the the Misonos and uh, Suisins and all the things from like Corinne. Right. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Going to ship. Yeah, and I would, yeah, and I would hear them. They'd get this new knife and they'd they'd use it and they're like, "Oh, I don't like the feel of this." I'm like, "It's too bad you can't feel that knife." Um, right. Right. Exactly. Before you buy it. Yeah. Do you guys? Um, what What's the What's the best way to combat that? Like, do you do something like? Um, like Zappos, you know, or they like you can try on your shoes, and if you don't like them, you can send it back. Like, do you guys do any? Have you guys had any experience of that where it's like you send someone a knife and they're like, "This, this isn't for me." Uh, I, I can't recall anyone ever sending a knife back. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, we do want to offer like the best service. That's always what we want to do, but we don't want to have people use a knife for a month and then return it. You know, as mm-hmm. we grow, hopefully one day that we have enough capital and we can be big enough to where that's not going to really hurt us. You know, if someone were to right. be ordering five knives and then test them all out and return four of them, and then we've got to spend all this time totally. repairing them. Because there, there has to be that kind of like, um, you, you kind of have to be sure when you make a purchase like mm-hmm. that for sure. But at the same time, I'm just trying to think of, you know, like that would be huge if there was some sort of uh, option where you could do that, where you could just try knives yeah. and send it back and if anyone's unhappy um we've had a couple in the store where they get in they just don't like the feel of it sometimes they'll swap it Mm -hmm. out or uh, you know we try to do whatever we can to accommodate people is there any um custom work that you're doing right now that you're particularly super amped about uh you know the steak knife project is really exciting we're trying to do a lot of options Uh we want our steak knives to be in a ton of restaurants so we're really trying to push that a lot we're doing a lot of um, Mm -hmm. uh, boxes for them we've just got this new laser cutter an engraver, which is great, and it's helping us like cut these boxes. And we designed it all online, so all we have to do is uh, glue it and, and nail it together, which is kind of cool because that's Hell something yeah. that's lacking. We can't just do steak knives without them in a box. Right. Like, that they have sure. to go together, and like the wrap doesn't work. This is mainly for like the home cooks. You know, they want that steak uh-huh. knife box uh-huh. kit. So that's exciting. But we're also um, doing some sayas that we're going to release in the next week or two. So we're going to offer uh, custom sayas that are uh, turnaround and hopefully shorter than a week is what we're shooting for. We're doing uh, all these really cool acrylics, um, basic woods, but solid woods that are going to be like walnut, um, uh, maple. So some like really heavy uh, quality sayas. And then uh, behind that, we're also working on some oyster shuckers right now and carving forks. So we're adding some new product that's really exciting. Yeah. Dope. That's the sizes are going to be pretty. Hopefully, they take off pretty well. We've done the leather scabbards. I think you have one. Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah. have a couple. That was like that was like back when you were like hand <laughs> measuring them and measuring yeah, them for individual. Each one by hand, actually. Yeah, dude, that was yeah, that was awesome. We have, we've had a machine for a few years that does a great job of stitching that. The leather size, yeah. or uh, excuse me, leather scabbards. They take so much time to make. You know, cutting all that right. leather out and, and fitting it just right. It's, yeah, and you got to stitch. It's a ton of work, and for those, we do multiple steps of um, hardening the leather after it's done, so it kind of acts like a wooden side. It's nice and stiff. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. No, mine, mine are still yeah. holding up great. And I mean, like that was the thing that I remember is that like uh, you let me keep my knives 
when I like because you like you mm-hmm. did a drawing of the the shape of the blade, and then I got to take my which I, I was not expecting. I was expecting you to like mm-hmm. hold on to the knife through the whole process, but that was that was awesome that I could still use my knives and then just come back. I don't know, it was like yeah. two weeks or yeah. something. Pick up my pick up my. Scabber. Yeah, we don't that want people awesome. to be without their knives. Yeah. Okay. Um, that was another thing that I wanted to say. The service that you guys are providing, and I think that that comes from you having that empathy towards chefs, is that you do one-day mm-hmm. turnaround on Saturdays, yeah. right? always on Saturdays. Mm-hmm. In all your places. Where did that um, – was that kind of, again, like scratching your own itch, or did some somebody suggest that to you, or you were kind of like, you know, it would be really cool for cooks is if we could just give them sharpening in one day? Yeah, I mean, we still try to offer it throughout the week in one day. We just move uh-huh. pretty quick. It's never longer than 24 hours because, again, we don't want people to be right. without their knives, and we only need them mm-hmm. for a few minutes, but it just it's hard to, uh, I, I to balance all that. Um, but the Saturdays <laughs> we saw, people are running errands. It's a lot of the home cooks, the 9 to 5s. Uh-huh. They're out and they want to like drop off in the morning, go to the market, go to the store and like pick up their knives and cook dinner that night. So the same day yeah. Saturday is, is something we think is pretty special. I think about it from like the like as a line cook, Saturday is usually your mm-hmm. biggest day. <laughs> so like to have a super sharp, like freshly sharpened knife on a Saturday is, mm-hmm. is awesome because that's normally the, the day of the week when your your knife yeah. is the worst, right? Because it's like <laughs> it's, it's like your last day yeah. of your week. Absolutely. Taking it back again, what was, um, maybe you can tell me a little bit about the mentality you went through when you made that switch from sous chef to, to knife maker and you, you, you spent some time with master smiths. Mm-hmm. Do you, was that your kind of like how you would have done it if you were starting off in the industry again, like your, your apprenticeship, mm-hmm. quote unquote? Yeah, it was kind of like a slower process. I started off just having the store, uh, just retailing, sharpening, uh, making knife bags and scabbards. And it was about three years into it that I started to sell knives. And I used to just make one or two a month in the beginning. Um, mm. So it was a slow process and it was something that I was just toying around with uh, after hours or the one day we were closed, I would make you know, try to make a knife or play around with steel. Selling Aaron Wilburn's knives. I started selling his knives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He became a master smith a um, couple years after me opening. And he's totally great guy. He took me in. I used to drive up to Reading to his shop and, you know, hammer out some Damascus. Or we'd have, like, hour-long conversations. If I wanted to get into putting bolsters on my knives, he'd walk me through it over the phone or show me mm-hmm. next time I went to, to his workshop. Um, He's really great at just kind of teaching me those steps. You have this career right. in cooking, and you're also trying to transition into uh, making knives mm-hmm. in retail. What is there anything that you kind of latched onto uh, where it's like there's this company that you modeled after mm-hmm. or CEO that you're like, I want to do it just like he mm-hmm. or she did it? Yeah, that's um, there's probably hundreds along the way. You know, there's things yeah. that you see of like. Mm-hmm an image like maybe the customer service of a company that you really liked um, or mm-hmm. like the website. We're always looking at other companies that have good websites, uh, but right. you know, it's, it's endless. It's constantly finding like other businesses that are working um, like the Headley and yep. Bennett model. They're, they're a great company. Uh-huh. And I feel like every year we're doing something new. We're constantly trying to right. adjust and fit with the market. Just make like, make it with whatever the people want, you know, in your opinion is kind of killing it with knives right now. Uh, I like to think that we're killing it. <laughs> totally. Um, but there's a lot of great people. I mean, uh, uh, Mike Jarvis of Auxiliary, he's doing some really great yep. stuff. I mean, it's he does mainly like the EDC uh, tactical type of stuff. But yeah, yeah, yeah. His, uh, his eye for creation is really cool. His knives are, mm-hmm. are wicked. I feel like his shapes are outside the box a lot of the times. And... Is there... Uh... 
a piece of something that you've seen someone make recently where you're just like, whoa, that's really cool. I saw a pair of like Damascus tweezers on Instagram oh, yeah. the other day. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah, that shit. sounds pretty cool. I haven't seen that. I don't really spend a lot of time on Instagram anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's yeah. just like, it's overwhelming. You know, there's a... Um... Oh, is that from Aura? From no, Aura? no, I'm thinking of Everett. This kid Everett, he... Uh, I think uh-huh. he's younger, might be like 19 or 20. He came into my shop and I just discovered him on Instagram a couple of days before. And he stopped in and wanted to check it out. I think he's from Grass Valley, but he kind of like uh-huh. lives out of his car and travels up and down the coast and surfs and spends time out, time a lot of time outdoors. And he built a trailer that he's towing around and he's got his grinder and a like drill press on this trailer. And he's just like parks on the side of the road or wherever he finds space and he's making knives outside. It's so what? cool. Yeah, that's super. I mean, that's like... That's like the supreme Instagram yeah, business, absolutely. right? Where you can just be like, now I'm in, now uh-huh. I'm in Nevada, and now I'm in Colorado, and now I'm like, you know, I'll just, just, I'll stop at the post office on my way to my next place and ship out this. Yeah, knife and he's probably picking made. up wood that he finds on hikes, or you know, yeah, the kids, yep. the kids doing it right. What is a normal? Because you said um, you spend a lot of your time in that mm-hmm. Oakland facility. What does a typical day look like for you now? Because you are now in mm-hmm. two locations. Uh, I do a lot of the production still. Still, uh, I've got two got main people that are uh, doing knife production full time, so I step in with them. I work on developing new shapes. Um, you know, I'll sit with them and just grind blades all day if we need to, just kind of wherever that I need. I need mm-hmm. to be. Uh, I've got two uh, full time stitchers that I've been training on doing a lot more of the the woodwork for. Um, the boxes for steak knives and they're doing all the sayas so i've been training with them a lot and we're developing all those shapes so it's i kind of bounce around and just focus on keeping production uh keeping the quality up keeping our speed up mm-hmm. uh, making sure that everyone's like safe and, and healthy mentally <laughs> right <laughs> totally yeah that's <laughs> it's, super it's important phone calls i'm on the phone a lot with the, yeah. the san francisco store or the chicago store mm-hmm. uh, we use facetime mm-hmm. a great deal of the times like you know, if Chicago's got some really funky blade and they've got to show me the bevel, we're, we're on FaceTime. I'm trying to figure out uh-huh. and like, solve the problem from over here. I was going to ask you a little bit mm-hmm. about that store. I had the, uh, I spoke with Danny mm-hmm. while I was there in Chicago. What do you look for in those people? Because they can't just be mm-hmm. knife nerds, right? They, and, they, and they also can't just be excellent right. cooks, right? There has to be kind of like this combination. And I love that everyone that I've interacted with your brand has this kind of empathy mm-hmm. for chefs. And how, how do you kind of screen for that when you're hiring or bringing problem people solvers? On? That's what I look for is people yeah. that can just solve mm-hmm. problems because there's so many things, especially with sharpening that we get random things all the time, but it's all kind of the same in a sense. I mean, it, we're taking right. steel and we're rubbing it on a rock and you know, changing our <laughs> angles and yep. refining striations and, um, I, I look for people that are, are into that, that are willing to teach themselves things that might take uh, some extra time and read about different steels and have an understanding of that. Or, um, I mean, of course, they've got to be a knife nerd. And, and if they worked in a kitchen, that's great because they have used a lot of knives and we get a lot of customers that come in and get their knives sharpened and they're like, I'm going to cone feed duck this weekend, but I I've never done it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, so you got to be able to be, mm-hmm. yeah, wear mm-hmm. two hats in that, yeah. in that way. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. It's interesting. I have a, a question from someone who asked me on, on Twitter. Thomas wants to know, how do you get the um, patina to form? I think he's asking about the mm-hmm. knife that I bought from the you octagon? guys. The octagon? The forced patina? Yeah, uh, yeah, we dip it in ferric chloric acid. So uh-huh. it's used in a lot of uh, electronics. They'll etch copper with it. Um, and it, it forces the patina very quickly on that 50 to 100 carbon steel. It's, we dip it into this solution, uh, 
for about maybe 20 or 30 seconds and it gets really dark. And that's before the handles. Yeah. Right? With that one. Just correct. The blank. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Another question from Ash. He wants to know what's up with ceramic mm-hmm. knives <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that's, I, I didn't, I don't, I, I never know how to answer that question because I've never used a ceramic. I think that's knife. a great question. Just what's up with them. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I have zero, I, <laughs> yeah, zero I've, clue. I've used, uh, I've used one, like a little pairing. They seem to be a little bit thicker. We don't sharpen them. Uh, I, I don't know if it makes, some people really love ceramic knives, but uh, I don't see. I'm so scared of like a piece chipping exactly. off of my food. I feel like that's yeah, what I'm afraid exactly. of. Yeah, exactly. And again, it's like not metal. So like, how do you sharpen it or bring yeah, it back? It's microscopically, it's got to like chip, I would think, but. I I love steel. It's just it's, it's more like yeah. alive mm-hmm. to me. Even like stainless or carbon, it just feels different. It's it does a lot of cool things. This isn't the first time he's asked me about <laughs> ceramic knives because I feel like he has a set and he loves them. But I don't really. He does a lot of cooking at home, so I don't know if he's actually like mm-hmm. sharpening them week to week to week. Right? It's like you you buy one set of ceramic knives, and the marketing is just so good that you feel like you've bought a indestructible set of knives but in reality it might be a different story and that could be a lot of way with a lot of different knives the marketing could be so great in it but the heat treating is awful and they chip Uh so sadly there is a percentage of product out there that is really just marketing do you do you have any kind of horror stories like that where you've either you guys have done marketing in an improper way or you kind of have people that come in that are kind of like, they don't know how to care for the knife, but they just buy it because it's so it's marketed in yeah, a certain that way. It happens all the time. I mean, there's a, there's a brand sure. that's super well known and marketed really well. And, uh, we, they chip all the time and we fix the chips in it. I always joke and say fixing the chips and these knives pays our rent. A lot wow. of the customers come in, they spend a lot of money on these knives and, uh, um, they come in and they think that they've misused it or they're really bummed about it. Um, it's just, it's just the knife. It might be because of the heat treating and uh, maybe poor tempering or that's probably where it lies that it, it would just chip really easily. There's a lot of line cooks and culinary students and kind of like, do you have any advice for people that are just starting off in the industry or who are kind of in an interesting place in their, it's in their a career? tough industry. I wish it were easier. I wish that, you know, cooks can get paid a little more, maybe, have a couple more people in the kitchen <clears throat> you know people are running a business they try to cut labor and, and you push these cooks pretty hard it's an intense environment um I, you know i don't know just keep keep strong and and try to learn as much as you can you know n- never get in a rut i think that's that's yeah that's where it cooks <clears throat> i think that's what happened to me i feel like i just got burnt out and uh, i don't feel like i was learning anymore i didn't find that I was taking the time to try to learn anything anymore. It was just a job to me and I lost the passion. Right. Was that when you became a sous chef? Yeah, I was a sous chef at a couple different places. Um, but in yeah. Quince, I wanted to get to that caliber of a restaurant. I, um, that was the nicest place I'd worked in. And as soon as I got there, it was like, I think that I had been burnt out before I even got there. Um, mm-hmm. it, was, it was really hard. It was actually really sad for me to leave the industry. But I don't miss it. Do you ever? <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> don't miss, don't miss the long hours in the line. Do you? Do you end up cooking for yourself? Yeah, still I still a lot? cook at home quite a uh, bit. Yeah, that's good. and I enjoy it a lot more. That's good. But I still find that I do big uh, batch cooking a lot. I, I still like yeah. when I cooked. One of my favorite things to do was butcher and make stocks, and uh, I still make mm-hmm. a ton of stock and, and drink stock all the time. 
just because I love making it. Hell yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, and you don't, you said you mentioned earlier, you don't go out to eat that much. Do you, is there any inspiration you get from going out to eat or it's kind of like, you just don't have the time? Uh, don't have the time. You know, it's pretty expensive. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I try to cook at home as much as I can. I do enjoy going out. It just doesn't happen that often. Uh, and there's, totally. you know, there's a lot of places that I feel might be overhyped. You know, you, you go mm-hmm. to eat these meals and it's, you spend, spend a ton of money on it. And it's sometimes I don't really like taste the passion in it. You know, some of my favorite stuff is just right. the simplest things. Uh, yeah. And a lot of restaurants seem to have like the same dishes. And I don't know if it's from cooks, if it's like this in the Bay Area, I feel cooks move around a lot. They don't really stick at a job mm-hmm. that long. So I feel like those techniques and those dishes are bleeding throughout the whole industry. So you're going to have like the same beet and goat cheese salad at like seven different restaurants <laughs> totally totally yeah we've all seen that do you is is it different in chicago from what you've kind of experienced yeah definitely um the food scene mm-hmm. i feel is totally different out there um the protein that i've had out there uh-huh. is unbelievable like the boca group i've yeah, eaten yeah, at yeah. boca and uh somerset and i think they what they've nailed their protein it's it's incredible the flavor they they get out of it is is amazing so that's, that's awesome. super exciting but you know outside that one of my favorite places in san francisco is house of prime rib yeah hell yeah it's As like it the most be. consistent place uh it's killer in yeah, catonia yeah. like if i go out that's all i want to do is go to catonia and eat pasta spoons mm-hmm. you're really into mm-hmm. spoons do you have you ever made your no, own spoon no i haven't is there any interest in doing yeah, so yeah there is but i don't think that we can get it down to a price point to where uh-huh. we're selling these vintage spoons and we go through about 200 a month. Um, wow. And, you know, I just don't know that we could ever make it that cheap. People want bundles of spoons. Yeah. They want handfuls. And, right. you know, to be able to make all the different shapes and have a mold for so many different shapes, it would just be too expensive for us. Even out of, like, a higher – like, if you're spending $400 mm-hmm. on a knife, who's to say you can't have a – Seventy-five dollars. Yeah, yeah. That's my thing. I don't know. It's kind of like been something in my head for a really mm-hmm. long time to make like a really high quality mm-hmm. spoon. Because like I feel like when you compare it like that, it's not mm-hmm. really that bad. But when you compare it to like oh, uh, I mean your your silver spoons are what fifteen nine bucks nine yeah super yeah. affordable like to when you make that comparison it's like seventy five dollars for a spoon mm-hmm. that's crazy but. I mean, comparing it to like how the the amount of dollars that you've invested in your knives, and I don't know. I had someone comment the other day that the spoon is more used than the knife in in certain cases. Yeah, right? definitely. It's so, a good point. Just I don't know. Just curious if you if you, if that's been an idea that you've marinated on, or if you've considered doing anything yeah. custom. Well, we think own. about making a lot of things, but we're now that mm-hmm. as we grow and we're getting rid of retailing so many other brands and trying to focus on our own brands, we're we're stuck in just making our knives so much now and so we're trying not to add a lot of new stuff to it too much we're trying to add like some new lines that are affordable but still the same process Um, so we're trying to just focus on knives even like our knife bags we're not really uh, releasing any new products we're not really investing time into redesigning them because i feel like that market's pretty flooded i mean for years knife bags were like a third of our sales wow and now we're we're seeing that it totally like plateauing out a lot and i feel like that market you know seven years ago when we opened up there was nowhere to get knife bags really and now there's like right. tons of people that are making them and they're making them in such good quality and, and now these things last so long that all these cooks have one or two bags already um, right and that's not something that you like repeat exactly purchase, yeah. right? like you you get like you said you get one or two 
and it's like maybe you switch mm -hmm. between a couple. Yeah, exactly. That's interesting. Yeah, so a lot of like this, instead of like uh, eliminating that department and those products, we're trying to cross train like the stitchers to do other things, and they've been helping us with the knives mm -hmm. a little bit too. Um, so that's been a right. big transition this year, is seeing that our sales and the bags are kind of slowing down a bit, and so we're trying to focus more on. Uh, keeping stock of our knives we've right, never really right. had like a full stock of every shape and multiple of them we sell them faster than we could make them and so a lot of our stuff is custom orders i'd say more than half of the stuff we make are all custom you know? wow and that has to do with just people wanting unique things yeah i think or... so i think they like that they say they got this knife made for them and really uh -huh. all they're doing now yep. is picking out the wood because we use a lot of buckeye burl and right it has so much sure. variation. They might fall in love with a piece that has like this perfect blonde streak in the middle, and that's the one they want for a handle. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Totally, I've I, I had that experience. <laughs> <laughs> well, not with you. Hey, there was a there was a place mm -hmm. in Japan where it's just like there's something about the way that the wood was patterned that was just like I have right. to have that. You yeah, know, that's pretty cool. What's your go-to knife that you're using when you cook, uh, like at home? Is there a certain shape or one that you're kind of drawn mm, to i like our utility knife a lot the six inch utility uh -huh, i've got uh -huh. one that was uh broken someone like bro i think they sabered a champagne bottle and like has this huge crack <laughs> in it so it's all beat up but i i like it i yeah. just kind of use That's like cool. all just beat up old knives are there any kind of big landmarks that you guys are stretching for in 2018 or anything that you're kind you're kind of like excited about or it's just kind of keeping yeah, the biggest it? thing is uh stocking our knives up a lot more and, and yeah you know, a lot of great brands that we've sold, like Zanmai and Takeda, um, they've been selling those for years, and I love those knives. It seems to get harder to keep in stock, and, like, sometimes mm -hmm. I order from these companies, and they don't show up for, like, six months. Uh, the margins aren't that great, so I feel that we're kind of being forced into making more of our knives, and that's what we want to do. Um, so that's our goal, is to keep a full stock. By this summer, we should have four lines. Uh, our square back is a line that's going to be released soon. Because you, you got our octagon, which is like one of our... Yeah. We released that in uh -huh. December, and as soon as we released it, our 5200 steel, we couldn't get that steel for months. Oh, and, no. uh, you know, we still don't have a lot of that steel, so those are now running out of stock. Uh -huh. On hold. And so we're pushing yeah. like our square back, which is going to be our most affordable, at like 100 and I think we're 170 for a chef knife. Can you uh, tell me a little bit more about that one? Yeah. Square back? I'm going to pull yeah. it up here. I'm not sure if we have photos on our website yet, but you, uh -huh. um, maybe on, on Instagram. The, yeah, it's Instagram? a light wood. Is that like the... Uh -huh. It's got a mosaic yeah. pen uh -huh. in the middle of our logo. So that's kind of a cool feature, but it's, it's not hand polished. It's just a machine finish. Um, it's very simple to grind. Right. It's just square. I think, you know, with our classic and, and pummel classic, it, has a lot of these curves, this teardrop shaped bolster, a lot of like ergonomics or ergonomic grip to it. Mm -hmm. and, uh, I think that we're kind of now falling in love with just square, simple stuff. And that's something right. that, are, as you know, our pallet knives have been out of stock too, because that steel uh -huh. has been yep, yep. Uh, hard to come by. So um, I think you have one of our very first ones when we used to bend yeah, that steel. It was like way yeah, OG. Now. Yeah, it was like. I don't remember what happened. I like walked in and you had like maybe like three of them yeah. sitting on the on a on a shelf and I was like, "What yeah. is that?" And I was like, "I have to." Yeah, have we're it. we're changing that right now too, and we're gonna um, try to make that a lot stronger. That tool gets beat up so much. We see these mm -hmm. things just mm -hmm. get like you know hammered. So we're trying to uh, yeah, we're gonna make those handles a little bit more square as opposed to the curve that you have. Okay. And we're doing two big uh, yep. stainless steel bolts through it. 
So instead of the straight mm-hmm. pins that go through that we peen over, um, we're going to do the yep. loveless fasteners that we do in a lot of our knives and uh, a uh-huh. lot more expensive, but it's going to be 10 times stronger of a pallet knife. Right. The coolest part about that, those pallet knives, at least the, the first iteration that you guys did was that like, I feel um, if I'm remembering correctly, it was you guys like hand shaped all of the mm-hmm. handles. And because of that reason, none of them were <laughs> consistent like yeah. at all. And you kind of like, we're just like, well, you just got to kind of feel whichever one feels the best in your hand. And then that's the one that you should grab. And I thought that was so yeah. cool. And it, unfortunately, we have to get away from that a little bit. And in the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. You know, production mm-hmm. could be like that. And it was very unique. And even our, our knives, um, we were just so new to this that we weren't that good or trained. We didn't have a system. Now we mm-hmm. have, like, measurements and make sure that there's a consistency right. to the product. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's just changed over time. But, yeah, that was that was a long time ago. Yeah, just the fact that, like, I never, because prior to that, the, the best, um, I mean, well, it, it wasn't the best. It was, like, the only option was, like, the Ateco mm-hmm. <laughs> palette knife. That's just, like, that's got to be such a hard balance for you guys to, to systemize, but also keep it unique. Yeah. And that was probably the right. biggest lesson that we learned was with the palette knives in the beginning. Uh, we used to bend all that steel. Mm-hmm. I believe back then we were using like 303 or 304 um, stainless, right. and it just didn't hold up. A lot of the handles broke. A lot of the palette knives bent. People were using them to like lift the eye of a French flat top with it. Uh-huh. To- totally bend it. Uh, our wood <laughs> yeah. back then was, was really cheap, and I think that it was, it was really hard to recover from that. A lot of people thought we were mm-hmm. making garbage mm-hmm. product. We replaced a lot. We turned to some companies to start making the blades for us. They got them a lot thinner. They had these machines that could press them so we can get this really thin, super, super flexible blade, but really strong. Um, so we right. went away with making the blades on that. Now we just attach the handles to them. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was that was a tough one in the beginning. I was going to say, like, that's almost necessary, right? To have those failures. Yeah, I think so. I mean, to pave the one way. Of the, greatest things I heard was fail faster. Let's fail and let's, let's learn from it and let's grow from it. And we try to recover right. gracefully with, you know, there's always a percentage of failure with every business. And, um, mm-hmm. we always try to like the most important thing is recovering gracefully. Is... We don't want to grow too fast either because that's where we, mm-hmm. sometimes we, we slip up and we miss something right. and we don't want to ever release a product that's, that's going to fail. So we've slowed down sure. a lot on that and we, um, test a lot of our product for a, a good long time. Are there any kind of like dream partner? Because I know you got you. You said you guys are trying to move a, a little bit away from carrying mm-hmm. other people's knives. But is there any other partnerships that you're kind of pursuing, as far as like getting other brands into the retail? No, locations? not at the moment. I mean, I do like supporting mm-hmm. local mm-hmm. makers. So uh, other knife makers will always sell, and we try to get some things from like the. Uh, California area that we'll sell in the San Francisco store or in Chicago. We try to sell like Chicago area mm-hmm. makers, but a lot of that's like, it's not consistent as far as like keeping it in stock. Yeah. It's like if they, uh, Mike, you know, brings us like 10 knives, you know, at a time. And sometimes we get down to only having two in stock or, you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of all over. People will come in and want to see this huge selection of auxiliary that we had you know, a month or two ago, but it might be a little bit lower at that moment because he's busy doing mm-hmm. other things and he's still selling knives on his own. I would assume that the, the home cook market is much larger mm-hmm. than the, the line cook market. Do you ever struggle with that to kind of like market to one Absolutely. versus the other or kind of like design your products for one yeah, versus the other? Yeah, uh, that's been one of the biggest things we've talked about in this year. We've always had the um, mentality of like, 
targeting to the professionals and the home cooks will follow. Mm-hmm. Uh, right but now we're finding right. that we're going to, we're starting to target more to the home cooks. It's a larger market. Mm-hmm. The professionals will always be there. We hope that we have their support. And, um, we love to sell to them because they, they beat the hell out of their tools and that's what we want to see. Yep. Um, and mm-hmm. so it's, it's been interesting to kind of make that transition to seeing a lot more home cooks. And it kind of blew my mind to see how many home cooks are coming in and, dropping money on like really great knives it's mm-hmm. crazy it's yeah. real though looking around when i was in Curran mm-hmm. and in new york city and it's like there's probably like two chefs in here and the shop yeah. is like full and you then then you really realize like oh man people are really and i don't know you 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 probably know this mm-hmm. better than anyone how, how many home cooks there are that are actually willing to spend, I mean, $250, $300. On yeah. Knife. I don't think I ever really stopped to look at it and like take notes of, uh-huh. of how it's changed. And we saw that all of mm-hmm. 2017 was like, wow, we sell a lot to the home cooks w- way more than the, right. the, the professionals. Cause unfortunately they don't get paid a whole lot, especially as mm-hmm. rents going mm-hmm. up in the Bay area constantly. Yeah. You know, I, I hate when cooks come in and they try to buy a really expensive knife and, they have to check their bank account. It's like let's yep. let's hold off. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe we can do like a layaway thing, or maybe you don't need this knife. Sure. Um, but the tech business is big, and you get these households that are six-figure incomes, <laughs> totally. and they're willing to to buy a whole new set of knives. You know, they get into yeah, cooking, they buy absolutely. good pans. Um, and I f- I feel like it's very similar to stereo equipment, though, too. On our level, is uh-huh. um, you know, it's probably not totally necessary to buy a two or three hundred and eighty dollar knife but it does make a difference a little bit but you know the two hundred dollar knife might be just as good for like just hacking up some vegetables right Right. and i would assume that like if you're just cooking it if you're cooking at home one of your knives would last like the edge at least would last especially if you buy it from you you can just like the fact that you can just bring that knife Mm -hmm. back into your store and you'll sharpen it for them i mean that that would sell it to me if i was a yeah absolutely i feel like that is a good selling point and for a long time, I think we got kind of bummed that we didn't see a lot of our knives coming back in. You know, last year was a big year for our knives. The year before 2016, we did uh, like 250 knives, and that was a huge leap to the year before. And so yep. last year, we didn't see a lot of knives come back in. Um, we're not really seeing a lot of our stuff come in for sharpening. Every once in a while, we do, and they're still sharp. That's the cool thing. Is sure. like we've seen knives that are a year That's too awesome. old. That's awesome carbon steel has a ton of patina so you know they're using it like crazy and they're still shaving hairs mm-hmm. on the arm so wow. we thought that people were just you know i was afraid that people weren't coming back because maybe they were unhappy but i think that they're these knives are just staying sharper than we had imagined they would that's exactly and what you want one thing that we have that i think is different than a lot of other knife makers is i started off just sharpening you know i've sharpened mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. forty thousand knives wow. we, don't, we know edge geometries super well we know how to sharpen that's what we do and we started making knives a few years back, and so our knives are totally sharp. You know, it, right. some knife makers don't have that sort of uh, advantage that they've had thousands of knives they've sharpened. They've probably only sharpened the knives they've made. Yeah, yeah. What is one or maybe a piece of advice that you see given out that is, like, completely false? They're just like, no, that's not true. We hear all sorts of things. With knives, like, do knives uh, get dull if you don't use them, if they just sit in a drawer? Um, (laughs) 
I've never yeah, heard that one. Yeah, we've heard some crazy things. What else? Like magnetic strips. People think that it like bends the edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've or heard like that. Uh, the wooden blocks, you know, that dulls the knife. All totally. It not depends. True. You know, if you're really rough with it, I mean, you're yeah. pushing that edge against a hard wood for a cutting board straight into it. It just gliding across into a wood block is probably not the worst thing. If anything, it's probably cleaning that edge up a little bit. When you run yep, an edge yep. on a piece of wood to like take that burr off, it might clean it a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but the worst thing about those blocks is probably the bacteria that we see. If people bring in a block, if you oh. look inside there with a flashlight, you'll probably never use that again. Oh my God. Yeah, you know. totally. What, so the, the pref- your preferred method is the magnetic Yeah, strip. I like the, the magnetic strip right against the wall. Doesn't mm-hmm. um, Being in the Bay Area, we don't have counter space out here. So uh-huh. yep. <laughs> uh, those are great. We used to make those for a long time, but uh, it was so expensive to use these rare earth magnets. Um, right. That we, don't do that anymore. Um, but I'd like to just leave mine out on a cutting board. I only have one or two I use. I have a towel that's rolled up and I put my knife on its side, kind of on that towel. So the edge is uh-huh. off the board. doesn't slide anywhere. Yep. Um, I like my knives yep. out. I want to see them. Have you heard of this guy? Uh, he's out of yes, Sweden. I know you're talking about. I think about. it's Sweden. Yes. Piotr the Bear. His stuff yeah, is Piotr great. the Bear. His stuff yeah, is we've awesome. actually uh, been in some email conversations talking about getting his product. Yeah, it's really Hell cool. Yeah. I mean, just the... I mean, I'm the one that the product I'm talking about is the leather yeah. magnetic thing that goes mm-hmm. on the wall. I just think that's. And he's awesome. got these pucks now. Someone showed me. Yes, displays it, gets it out of the drawer, so you can mm-hmm. actually see it. But also, is like intelligent mm-hmm. storage, not just you know putting it out. And on it's display. out. It's dry too. That's what you want it to yeah. dry and breathe. Yeah. We also have these mm-hmm. countertop mm-hmm. blocks that are called 360 blocks. Yeah, I was. Yeah, they're pretty cool. When I went to visit the yeah, yeah super awesome. Who makes those? Uh, it's a couple that's here in San Francisco, and they worked on it for years, okay. and they were okay. coming bringing prototypes to me they had the idea and then Mm -hmm. um, they saw my strips so they knew I knew how thin the wood would have to be and what type of magnets so I kind of helped with them a little bit they used my knives and kind of tested out and got the weight just right so they didn't tip over when you pull the knife off Um, it was a ton of prototyping Mm -hmm. for them and they make a great product where can people find you where where do you want people to to come say hi to you oh I online I'm like I'm in hiding I'm always in hiding in the warehouse yeah Um, yeah you could uh, email from the website always. I answer all those sure. emails. That goes directly to me. So any awesome. questions, people email all the time about a knife that they're looking to purchase or have questions about anything knife-related, hopefully. Thank you for making it this far in the show. I really appreciate your ears. I really enjoyed finally being able to interview Galen. Hopefully you learned a thing or two, got a little bit of insight maybe into him and his process or a little bit more about Town Cutler if you haven't heard of them or their stuff before. You can hopefully see why I'm so supportive. Again, if you want to follow Galen, he has opened the floodgates to his email. Uh, That is linked up down below. Plus, I'm going to obviously link up all of their social stuff in the show notes. Galen tells me he's not that great at technology, but you know, you know, you know how to use Google. You, you can find it. If you have someone that you want me to interview for the show, hit me up. Let me know. I am making 2018 the year of the interviews for me and this podcast. So the sky is the limit. I really hope that you guys can uh, find someone that you're interested in that you want to hear more about that you want me to interview and you can submit your questions. I can get access to them and then we can actually do a little sit down interview uh, with someone who is also a, a veteran of the industry. So regardless, keep crushing it. My name's Justin Kana. Have a good one.